Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, please. It is good to see all of you here today. We have guests here, also our, vis- our regulars, and it's good to see you, Jackie Bailey. We prayed for you, brother. Prayed for all the issues that you were facing. Good to see him back with us. And um, we spent considerable time praying for Brother Bailey. Good to see you and all the rest of you as well. All right, John chapter 16, we're going to look at verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 11 for our text here this morning. So follow along as I read. If you have not been with us, we are working through the gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and have been for the last year or so. And uh, we continue with our series here this morning. John chapter 16, verse 1, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. We'll stop right there. The text continues on and we'll get to all of that at a later time. But we'll cover this portion here just today. But I want to tell you before we begin here that the last two chapters of the Gospel of John have been dealing with Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure back to heaven. And you'll remember, if you've been with us in the study, that that less than 24 hours from this moment, Jesus is going to be on the cross. He's going to die. He's going to be put in a tomb. Their world is going to completely change. Their world is going to be turned upside down. And and so Jesus is dealing with this uh, preparation of his disciples for his departure back to heaven And again, he's about to go to the cross. They don't understand that. They don't know all that's about to happen. But Jesus does. And so Jesus is faithfully preparing and equipping his disciples, knowing that when it does happen, they're going to remember his words. And it's going to build their faith and it's going to build his will in their life. And so that's what the last two chapters have been primarily dealing with. Jesus in his last hours, focusing on his disciples to prepare them for what's coming. Our text verses this morning are a continuation of the very thing that we spoke about last week from chapter 15, which was Jesus giving a warning to his disciples of persecution that would come to them from the world because the world hates the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that that's true in the very first words that Jesus says here. Now, notice in verse 1, Jesus says, These things 
have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. And so it's a continuation of what Jesus has been talking about. And he says, I'm telling you these things because I don't want you to be offended. Now notice the word offended. The word offended simply means to trip up or to stumble. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is he's warning, he's safeguarding his disciples against the trials that they were going to face when he would leave. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. He didn't want them to stumble. He didn't want them to fall. He didn't want them to be ruined when the trouble came. I remember going into the ministry, which has almost been, it's been 20 years. It'll be 20 years this next year, full time in ministry. I remember, though, when it was, when I was, was preparing and ready to, uh, to, to move to Alaska and take a, a pastorate, a senior pastorate. I remember my pastor uh, talking with me and working with me, and he told me one time, I remember, you need to watch out for these things. You need to watch out for this. And the reason I want you to know this and watch out for that is because I don't want it to be something that ruins your ministry. It was preparation from one who cared. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples, preparing them because he cares. Now, when you get to verse 2, Jesus gets specific about some of the things that they should expect. Now, notice verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And so Jesus gets specific about some things that they should expect that would happen. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. By the time the Gospel of John was written, they had regularly experienced that very thing because the Pharisees and the, uh, had already determined long before that whoever would proclaim the name of Jesus Christ or whoever would show loyalty to Christ or whoever would, 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 would call Jesus the Messiah, that they would kick him out of the synagogue. Look in, chapter, look in John chapter 9, for example. John chapter 9. Look at verse 22. These words spake uh, his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. This was the mindset. Of course, you're talking about the man that was born blind here, and Jesus healed, now, healed him, and the Pharisees were all in an uproar. How did, the, how did this happen? Who healed you? And he said, Jesus, a man named Jesus did it. And then they called his parents, and the Bible says that the parents were like, you ask him, he can speak for himself. And the reason they said that was because they feared the Jews, because the Jews had already determined that whoever shows loyalty to Christ or confesses him, they would be put out of the synagogue. We can read in John chapter 12. We majored on John 12, 42 in our series on people pleasing, where the Bible says they did not confess him for fear of the Jews, right? And what was the thing that they feared? They feared that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. John 12, verse 42, look at it. John 12, 42, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And so Jesus is, 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 is predicting and telling 
and getting specific about some things that they could expect were, would happen. And then Jesus says, back in our text in verse 2, he says, In fact, not only will they kick you out of the synagogue, but the time is coming when people will kill you, and they're going to hunt you, and they're going to think that they're doing God some great service when they do it. That prophecy would come true very soon. Go to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we read about the account of the stoning of Stephen, his martyrdom. In Acts 7 in verse 54, the Bible says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Here we find the account of the stoning of Stephen. But verse 58 tells us that those who did that deed, they all laid their coats down at the feet of a man named Saul who would later become the Apostle Paul. But go to Acts chapter 8 and look in Acts chapter 8 in verse 3. Acts 8, 3, the Bible says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And the Bible says that they were, those who he was, were hunting, they were scattered abroad because of that persecution, and they went everywhere preaching the word. Look in Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Acts 9, 1 says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. He made havoc of the church. He, went, he was threatening slaughter and imprisonment of those who claimed the name of Jesus Christ. And Saul of Tarsus went hunting Christians thinking that he was doing God a service by killing those who proclaimed Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. Paul or Saul himself in Acts chapter 9 was converted to Christ. Praise the Lord. And he becomes the Apostle Paul. And his life changes. And later on, the Apostle Paul tells of what he was before he was converted to Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, turn over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was bestowed upon me. That was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. 
he, after he was converted to Christ, the way that he saw himself, and he says, I'm not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, and it's only the grace of God that has made me what I am. And I, I labored for the Lord because of what he has done in my life to change me and turn me, because he remembered what he was. In Galatians chapter 1, writing to the churches of Galatia, in verse 13, and we'll talk about this in our Wednesday night Bible study as we work through the book of Galatians, the conversion of the Apostle Paul and the power of the gospel to completely change a life. He says in verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation or my lifestyle in times past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion. Paul says, you heard about what my life used to be like. And then I got saved and how God has completely transformed and changed my life. The power of the gospel. He says in verse 14, and profited in the Jews' religion above many mine equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. This is why Paul persecuted people, thinking he was doing God a service. He was more zealous in the traditions of his fathers or his religion. How much damage has been done in the name of religion over the centuries? How many people have been killed and murdered in the name of, quote, Christianity? Not true Christianity, by the way. Thinking they're doing God a service. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul is talking about all of these things. And, and I'm saying that Jesus, back in our text, tells his disciples, here's what you can expect. And in fact, it's going to get to the point where people are going to kill you and they're going to think they're doing God some service. That prophecy would come true very soon. Now look at verses 3 and 4 back in our text, John chapter 16. In verse 3, And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. So Jesus forewarned his disciples that these things are going to happen. And when they do happen, you're going to remember the words that I told you. And here's what you're going to remember. And this is the point that Jesus is making. It's going to cost you something to follow me. You're going to remember my words, that these things are going to happen. And it's going to cost you something to follow me. But let me tell you this this morning, friend, because the words of Jesus remain true today. The world is still hostile toward Christ and the truth. Listen, the world is not hostile towards fake Christianity. There's a, quote, version of Christianity that wants to get along with everything. There's a version of, quote, Christianity that is not Christianity at all, that wants to accept the world's lifestyle, that wants to accept the world's, uh, the culture, 
and to, to embrace the culture. And, and you see, listen, I'm telling you, you see the, the, the shift ever more in the world that we live in, in the fact that the embracing of, of, of homosexuality and the embracing of immorality, even in the pulpits of churches, that's not real Christianity. That's not Jesus Christ and His truth. And the world's not hostile to that, but it is to true Christianity. And the point that I'm making here is that the words of Jesus are still true. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful as we, as we, as we try to represent Jesus Christ. We need to be careful to disciple and to teach uh, genuine believers and new believers uh, to, to truly observe all that Jesus commanded. And we should not, we should not go along with the, the, uh, the flow and go along with the message of the world's version of Christianity. That God loves you and he has a great plan for your life, which he does. But they spin it, that God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy and he wants you to be wise. It's called the social gospel. And it's dumbing down or, or softening the message of, 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 why, of salvation. Why we need to be saved. Why? Because we're in danger of God's judgment because of our sin. You want to placate and want to soften it to bring in the crowds. But you know what? We ought to dispel any illusion and deal honestly with unrealistic expectations in this world. That it's going to cost you something to follow Jesus Christ. There's truly a cost. I was just chatting with Noah George this morning. And I love the fact that we can communicate so easily through social media and so on. I can stay up to date with what he's thinking and what he's doing. And I'm telling you, one of the things I appreciate so much about Noah George is that in the culture that he works in, it would be very easy for him, very easy for him to have all kinds of recruits, all kinds of professions. But he faithfully teaches the gospel and he faithfully teaches that, listen, it's going to cost you something to choose Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ. They understand that in their culture. And just this morning, uh, as we were chatting back and forth, he, he said, pray for Sister Nawal. It's very, very close that she's about to get baptized. And listen, what I'm saying is that means something. It means that she's choosing, she's counting the cost, and she understands what it's going to cost her, but she's going to identify with Christ. Yeah, amen. We need to do the same thing, though. As we disciple believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to dispel any illusions that following Christ, and in our culture it's getting worse and worse, that it's going to cost you something. You know what? When, when, a, when, a, when a tree in the forest stands taller than the rest of the trees, it's going to endure the full force of the wind against itself. And it illustrates this truth. It illustrates that when a Christian stands for Christ truly in this culture, they will experience the full force of the world's opposition. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Preparing these disciples is what Jesus is doing. Preparing new believers 
for times of discouragement is going to teach them, listen, there's a source that you can rely on. Even in the middle of trouble, it's the Holy Spirit of God. He's going to give you comfort. He's going to give you guidance along the way. And that is exactly what Jesus is about to do with his disciples here in our text. Look at verses 5 through 7. He says, but now I go my way. He says, I haven't told you these things before. I'm telling you them now. And the reason I didn't tell you them before is because I was with you. I was your comfort. I was your strength. But then he gets to verse 5 and he says, but now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me whither goest thou. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, not all the news for these disciples was grim. There would be persecutions, and Jesus is preparing them for that. But Jesus tells his disciples that even though I'm going away, and even though you're going to face these things, I'm not going to leave you alone. Chapter 16 is mainly about the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. But we find it in two different ways in this chapter. The ministry of the Spirit of God in this world, which is what we're going to cover today, but also the ministry of the Spirit of God in the life of a believer. And so as Jesus continues with his disciples here, he understands that it's hard for them to wrap their minds around what he's saying and hard for them to wrap their minds around what's about to happen. And it's caused trouble in their hearts. And he says, I'm telling you the truth. It's good for you that I go away. Now think about that for a second, okay? You can think about it from the disciples' perspective. As Jesus is talking, I'm leaving you. But I'm not going to leave you alone. The Comforter is going to come to you. But it's good for you if I go away. Think about it from the disciples' perspective. They're like, how could it possibly be good for us that you're leaving us? Think about what had happened. Judas had already slipped out into the night. Jesus said, there's one that's going to be of you that's going to betray me. He had already predicted Peter's denial. That's about to happen. The world system was plotting murder and the death of their master. He says he's leaving. Sorrow is filling their hearts. And then Jesus says, but it's good for you that I go away. Right? You follow that? You can imagine their thought process. Like, How in the world is it good for us that you're going away? The disciples would come to understand what he meant, though. And what he meant was that the Holy Spirit of God, which they were not familiar with at this point, the Holy Spirit of God would come alongside them. He would encourage them. He would teach them. He would carry the presence of Christ to each of them. They would eventually come to understand that. But understand this, up to this point, up to this time, the permanent indwelling of the Spirit of God had not yet been given. 
because Jesus was present with them and he wasn't yet glorified. Jesus said so in John chapter 7 in verse 38. He said, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given because that Jesus was not yet glorified. But after his glorification, he would send to them, and Jesus says in our text, he says, it's good for you that I go away, because if I don't, the comforter won't come unto you. But if I do go away, I'm going to send him to you, and he's going to help you. After his glorification, he would send the Spirit of God to come alongside them, to enable them, to help them. Now notice in verse 7, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. The word comforter is used here. It's the Greek word parakletos. And it means an intercessor. It means a consoler. It means one who brings comfort. So Jesus says, I'm going I'm to send one to console you, even though sorrow is filling your heart. I'm going to send one to you who's going to bring comfort into your life. And we're going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer later on. But what we also note from our passage here is that we find in our text that when the Comforter is sent from Christ, he would do more than just bring comfort to the life of a believer. He also had a ministry in this world, too. His ministry was to comfort the believer, but also to reprove the world. Look at verse 8. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is where we're going to spend our time today. The ministry of the Spirit of God in this world as a reprover. And there are three things that we're going to look at. Three areas in which the Spirit of God reproves the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us with this passage today. And I pray that you would bring conviction to the hearts of men who need the Lord. And Father, may your spirit have free course to work in our hearts here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Consider the ministry of the Spirit in this world. Verse 8, down through verse 11. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now, we're going to get into these three things, but let me say this as we start. Apart from the Holy Spirit of God, mankind does not understand spiritual realities. The truths of God are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot know them or understand them. Apart from the Spirit of God, the natural man does not understand spiritual realities. The ministry of the Spirit of God to the world is to bring a correct understanding of three realities, the reality of sin, the reality of righteousness, and the reality of judgment. Many people think that ignorance is bliss, 
And what they don't know is not going to hurt them. But that is so far from being true in reality. Even on the most mundane level, what we don't know can actually work great harm in our life. For example, somebody may not know that they have cancer. But guess what? Cancer is going to work great harm in their life. Ignorance is not bliss. What we don't know will actually hurt us and can actually bring death. But even greater is that truth on a spiritual plane. Our ignorance of sin, our ignorance of righteousness, ignorance of judgment will actually ultimately bring eternal hurt in a person's life. And so Jesus says the Holy Spirit's job or ministry in this world when he comes is to reprove the world. The word reprove means to convict or convince. To convince the world, to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's a legal term. It's a legal term for a courtroom that carries the meaning of cross-examination with the purpose of convincing or refuting an opponent. It means to expose the facts. It means to expose the realities. The Spirit doesn't simply convict the world, but the Spirit shows what is lacking in knowledge of what sin and righteousness and judgment really is, the reality of it. That's the ministry of the Spirit. The conviction of the Spirit in this world comes in these three ways. The conviction or the reproving of sin, the conviction of righteousness, and the conviction of judgment. And I want to look at these three this morning. Look at verse 9. Of sin, because they believe not on me. So Jesus says the Spirit of God is going to reprove or convict the world of these three things, and he's going to convict of sin. Why? Because they believe not on me. What is the conviction of sin? The job of the Spirit of God is to bring conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit brings the actual guilt of sin home to the human conscience so that the, so that the human can seek relief or seek safety from it. Jesus, Jesus just got done telling his disciples that what he did and what he said during his ministry exposed the unbeliever's sin. And now they don't have any covering for their sin. They don't have any excuse. They don't have a cloak for it. There's nowhere for them to hide because Jesus exposed it. Well, the Spirit of God continues the work of Jesus Christ in the heart of men. He proves the world wrong by exposing the world's error and convincing people that they are actually guilty and sinners before a righteous and a holy God. And the Bible says that when the word of God is preached and the, and the spirit of God empowers the word, that it begins to cut to people's heart and they don't like it. There's an example of that. On the day of Pentecost, go back to Acts chapter 2 or over to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, and we're actually going to go back to chapter 1 here for just a minute. What we find in Acts chapter 1 is that the believers in that first church, they had gathered together for many days because that's what Jesus said to do. Go 
and wait for the promise of the Father. And they assembled together in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. Now go to verse 8. Jesus says, but ye shall receive power. It's dunamis, it's ability. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. So Jesus is ascending back to heaven. And he told his disciples, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go to my father's. But I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the comforter to you, the Holy Ghost. And so this is happening right here. And Jesus says the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. You're going to have ability to be witnesses for me. And as he said that, he was taken back up into heaven. All right? Now go to verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. So here the church is assembled together. They've got the promise of Jesus Christ. They're waiting for the fulfillment of that promise, just like Jesus said. Now go to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It means they're speaking in other languages. They were known languages. They just weren't their native tongue. And so here they are, miraculously speaking in another language. It's like if I could instantaneously speak Spanish and communicate with Michelle and Aaron, and none of you would know what we're talking about. We would tell jokes about you for sure. <laughs> That's what it was like instantaneously. By the power of the Spirit of God, they were able to speak another language. There was a reason for that. Let's read on. Verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in their own language. So here are, are the disciples with the ability to speak in, in these different languages. And people are like, how do you know? How do you know how to speak Spanish or whatever language it was? And we'll see some of that in a second. Verse 7, and they were all amazed and marveled saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? And verse 9 lists all the different nationalities or tongues, languages that people uh, were represented there. Now, what happens next is that Peter stands up and he begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of these others are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in their native tongue. And he's preaching unto them Jesus. Now I want you to go to the end of chapter 2. Go to verse 36 of chapter 2. And I want you to notice at the end of Peter's sermon here. Chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, so he's concluding his sermon. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly 
that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for or because of the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Notice the response to Peter's preaching. On the day of Pentecost, he preaches unto them Jesus. He testifies and he says, I want you to know that the same Jesus that you crucified, he's the Messiah. God has made him Lord in Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And the response was, what should we do? And then they gladly received the word and they were saved. The response was an amazing one. 3,000 people saved and baptized on that day. What an amazing thing. But you know what? It wasn't Peter's eloquence in his preaching. It wasn't his dynamic personality. It wasn't his sermon structure. Oh, he's a great pulpiteer. Oh, I've got this down. Oh, I'm qualified. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't anything like that at all. It had nothing to do with him. You know what it had to do with? It had to do with the convicting power of the Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost had filled them. The Holy Ghost had empowered the preaching, and it caused the people to respond in a way that was miraculous. What should we do? It was the Spirit of God that elicited that kind of response. The listeners' hearts were pierced, seeing their own guilt of what they had done, and they came to salvation. Let me make this application. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God concerning sin. That's, what is, that's, what, that's what's happening here. Concerning sin, the Spirit of God's job is to convict the world of sin, to bring the guilt of sin home to the human heart. Listen, that phrase describes exactly what happened to me as a 19-year-old man, young man, sitting under the sound of the preaching, growing up under truth, hearing the truth of God, hearing the Bible, having standards, being a quote in a Christian home. Listen, that did nothing for me until the Spirit of God came and put it right on my doorstep. He started poking his finger right in my own heart. That's you. You're guilty. You're guilty of breaking my law. You're guilty of sin. You're going to experience the judgment of God for all eternity if you don't listen and respond to what I'm saying to you. That's what the Spirit of God did. 
in my own heart. He said, you lie. You cheat. You steal. You disobey. You have a hard heart. You have wicked thoughts. You're a fraud. You're a fake. That's what the Spirit of God was doing, pointing his finger into my own heart. You're guilty before God. The conviction of sin and the weight of what I had done. And I had become increasingly aware of my own sinfulness. But more importantly, becoming increasingly aware that I'm in big trouble with God. Because He was going to judge me and He was going to judge my sin for all eternity in the lake of fire. No person can do that. No eloquent speaker, no sermon outline can really do that. Only the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and putting it into a person's heart can do that. The Holy Spirit brings the guilt of sin home to the human conscience so that they will run and seek relief. Jesus said, the words that I spoke, the things that I did, they exposed man's sin. Now there's no covering for it. And there's nowhere to hide. That's what the Spirit of God continues to do in the hearts of men. One man said this, Man is great insofar as he is wretched. For only as we see the wretchedness of our sin can we come unto the blessedness of God's grace. It's only when we understand the guilt of our sin that we understand that it's only the grace of God that can save my soul. The conviction of sin becomes so strong and it exposes our shame that it brings with it a sense of emptiness, a sense of dread, because that, listen, that is exactly what I need so that I'll run for refuge because I can't save myself. This is the problem with, quote, Christianity today. And the social gospel and a false gospel that says, listen, that says, you know what? The Lord, the Lord will take you just as you are, and he will. But it also says you come and stay the same. No, no, no. God doesn't want you to stay the same. He will take you as you are, but he wants to change your life. And in order for him to change your life, you have to agree with God when God says you're guilty. And your sin is going to be judged. And I come to the place where the Spirit of God exposes that to me. And I'm like, you're right. You're right, Lord. You're right. And I'm wrong. And I'm in trouble. I'm guilty of my sin. And it's not okay. It's the conviction of the Spirit of God that causes us to turn in repentance toward God. It says, I'm sorry. For what I've done toward you, God. And I can't save myself, and there's no hope for me except for Jesus Christ. And I turn in repentance and faith, faith in Him 
what he's done for me, that he took my place. Now notice verse 9 of our text. It says of sin, because they believe not on me. Of sin, because they believe not on me. The greatest sin of all is the refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. We, we like to label sins. We like to measure them. Oh, here's the really bad ones, the immoral ones. But this little lie over here that I told, or being dishonest, or, or this little gossip over here that I know that I'm guilty of, it's not as bad as the immoral ones, and we weigh out sin and measure them. But you know, the greatest sin of all is the refusal to believe on Jesus Christ. Those who turn their back on Christ and reject Him will face the eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire for all eternity. Go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Here's why. In John 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's Jesus. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see the heart of God. He wants to save the world, and the only way is for Jesus Christ to come in and give his life, and it's because of his love for you that he did all of that. But verse 18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Why is it that people reject Jesus Christ? Because they love their sin. They love their darkness because their deeds are evil. But I want you to see verse 36. Go to verse 36 of this chapter. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And here it is, but the wrath of God abideth. The wrath of God abideth on him because he didn't believe. Those who turn their back on Christ and reject him are going to face the wrath of God for all eternity. And so the Spirit of God comes and he convinces and convicts the world of sin to bring the, the guilt and the weight of sin to the human conscience so we can understand the depth of what is happening here, that I'm under the wrath of God and I don't want to be, and I run for refuge. We can't really be saved until we fully understand our guilt before God. That's why repentance, preaching on repentance, is so, so important. That's why not watering down the gospel and softening the edges because people don't and won't understand their own guilt before God. They can never be saved until we come to the place where I'm ready to repent before God. 
in verse 10 of our text. Go back to John. Need to move on here. Of righteousness. Because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Here's the conviction of righteousness. So the Spirit of God is going to convict the world of sin and convict the world of righteousness. There are two ways that we can understand this. Number one, the Holy Spirit works to show people that Christ alone provides the standard of God's righteousness. The Holy Spirit must make an unbeliever recognize God's perfect holiness before they'll ever admit their own deficiency. You understand what I mean by that? The Spirit of God exposes and illuminates our understanding to help us understand that God is perfect, God is holy, God is righteous, and there's no possible way that we could ever measure up to that. Before we'll ever admit our own deficiency, we have to see the holiness of God. As long as people can maintain the idea that God is somehow less than absolutely perfect, then we can hide from our own condition. The Holy Spirit of God begins to lift that veil and display to the human heart God's absolute holiness and my utter sinfulness. And the Spirit then shows the futility of any kind of self-righteousness. In other words, the Spirit of God begins to reveal that there is nothing I can do and nothing in me that is worthy of God's favor. Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away, and there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. What the prophet is saying is, We're all guilty, we're all wicked, nothing we can do is worthy of God, and there's none that calleth upon thee, there's none who has got power in himself to take hold of thee. No, God is hid because of our iniquities. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The only way that we can have righteousness that God will accept is the righteousness that is imputed to us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, because we don't have any of our own. And there's no good work, and there's no religion, and there's no nothing that will ever merit favor with God. Do you go to church and say, oh, I'm a good Christian. Oh, I'm a good person. You really a good person? We all like to think we are. This is exactly what I'm talking about. The Spirit of God begins to reveal to us the absolute holiness of God. And I am not a good person. And I cannot earn God's favor. I break God's law every single day. Probably almost every minute of every day. If we're being honest. Because my nature is wretched. And what I need is a substitute. What I need is someone to do it for me. The Spirit of God begins to convict of righteousness. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
Listen, doing good and doing good works is never going to justify anybody. It's not possible. In fact, the law was given to show us the standard of God's holiness that we could never, ever measure up to. We fall short every time. The righteousness of God only comes through faith because the very next verse, Romans 3.21 says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested or made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that what? Believe. Not work, but believe. Now notice verse 10 again of our text. It says, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that Jesus was the one who convicted the world of unrighteousness by exposing the hearts of men. But once Jesus would leave this earth, the Spirit of God would continue on Jesus' work. What he does is seek to convince us that our own righteousness can never, ever come close to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That there's no hope in even trying. When we are so convicted of that, then we abandon the thought of ever trying harder to be good. We abandon all hope in salvation from any effort of our own. And we turn to Christ. Paul said in Philippians 3, 9, to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, the person who is under the conviction of the Spirit of God over his sin will also become deeply aware of his own personal unworthiness, even to be saved. Only the Spirit of God can bring that. And let me ask you the question this morning. So I'm going to hurry along and finish up here. But let me ask you the question. Are you convicted over your sin? Are you convinced of your guilt before God? Are you convinced there's no way for you to be saved from the wrath of God except through the righteousness of Christ, which is received by faith? Are you at that point where the Spirit of God is poking your heart? What are you feeling right now? Uneasiness inside? Something kind of gnawing at you right now? That's the Holy Spirit doing his work, convicting of sin and of righteousness. Notice verse 11. Because if the Holy Spirit has convinced you of sin and of righteousness, the third conviction follows. Verse 11, of judgment. Of judgment. The Holy Spirit convinces the world that there is such a thing as judgment. And notice he says, because the prince of this world is judged. The Spirit of God convinces the world that there is such a thing as judgment. The breaking of Satan's power when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. And then when Jesus rose from the grave, it's proof that the prince of this world is judged. 
Jesus said the Spirit would convict concerning judgment because the prince of this world has already been judged. His his execution date, it's already been set. When Jesus was on the cross, Satan threw at him every power at his disposal. But Jesus rose from the dead. And when he ascended up on high, he led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts unto men, Ephesians 4, 8 says. In other words, what that passage is talking about is that he triumphed and he, Jesus led a victory parade. He led a victory parade over sin, over death, over hell, over the power of Satan. Satan only bruised his heel. But Jesus Christ crushed Satan's head. Now, why is that significant? Because Christ will now bring judgment on all those who are a part of this world system. All of those who reject Christ are of their father, the devil. He's the final judge. Friend, when I was 19 years old, and there's conviction from the Spirit of God. I knew all my sin. I could see it. I had done some awful things. And I knew that I was guilty. Guilty. Standing before God. I knew that righteousness and favor from God was nothing I could ever deserve or ever earn. I knew the righteousness of Jesus Christ was something I could never, ever match up to, and I was under judgment. It felt like a heavy load, but I couldn't bear. But friend, it was the very thing that caused me to run to Jesus Christ for mercy and grace. God's mercy was the only hope that I had. And it was the conviction of the Spirit of God that brought me to the point to understand that I need to run to Him. Do you understand that? The Holy Spirit shows people their sin in order to bring them to repentance. He personalizes God's accusations from all are guilty to you are guilty. He breaks through our defenses. He breaks through our rationalizations and he confronts us with at least a glimpse of our true selves in relation to God's standard that I'm in trouble because God is holy and I'm sinful. And he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the reason for the conviction of the Spirit of God. And I'm asking you again as we close this morning, are you experiencing conviction of sin? Is there something inside of you that won't let you go and keeps gnawing at you even at this moment? If that is you, friend, that is a great thing. That is a wonderful thing. 
And I would tell you, don't fight that. Respond to it. Embrace it. Thank God for it. Why? Because he doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to repent. He loves you. And he's drawing you to himself because he wants to save your soul. One question that we're all going to have to answer for at some point is this. Not how many times did we hear the gospel, but how did we respond to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in this area? You've got a choice today. Respond as the Spirit of God is drawing you and you feel it inside, or to reject it. So if you're going to be accountable for that, I feel bad. You're not, if you're not saved today, maybe you think you're a Christian. Maybe you've always claimed to be. Maybe you have some sort of a profession. And you've been operating under this pretense this whole time. But the Spirit of God is starting to bring conviction to your heart. He's starting to make you question. He's starting to reveal and lift that veil and cause you to be like, well, wait a second. Why do I feel like this? Starting to expose what's really there so that you will come to a place of true and genuine repentance toward God. So he can save your soul. That's a wonderful thing. Not something to be rejected, something to be embraced. So thank you, Lord. That is a measure and a, a picture of God's grace and mercy to you right now. Respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you'd work in the hearts of many. Thank you for the Spirit of God to reprove or convict the world or me of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. And Lord, as you use your Spirit, as the Spirit of God opens up the understanding of men's hearts, Lord, I pray that there would be a tender response. Pray for those who are not saved here this morning. Would you bring full conviction, Lord, that they would turn and run to Jesus Christ for refuge. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet, please. Heads